Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we're going to close out that chapter and go through chapter 7 today. Uh, I think it's around page 631 uh, is chapter 6. In your Bible, it might be 632. I know chapter 7 is in 632, so uh, you'll, you'll be real close if you get to 631 and 632. Um, so, last week, if you were here or able to, to listen to that, uh, we looked at the first real um, disunity that tried to get its way into the church. So Satan tried to get the church off of the unity track. Because if, he, if you can get something to not be unified, you can break it apart. So Satan could not get the church to uh, really get all riled up and, and, and bundled up in fear at the potential persecution and arrest. So he tried a different tactic, and it didn't work the way that he hoped it would. So what happened was they found out that in the, the food distribution... Now listen, all this stuff is connected. If you remember, as people get filled with the Spirit and the preaching of the Lord of, the Lord of God is, is going out amongst the people, God is indwelling people with His Spirit and, and, and people are being saved from their sins. They're realizing redemption comes through the person of Jesus and they're receiving that gift of salvation and it's, it's growing in mass numbers. And as it's growing, these people are taking their possessions and they're, they're saying, listen, I have this, I don't need it, I sold it. Here, the apostles, taking it to the apostles, say, here, take this, whatever substantial amount is. Sometimes they're actually bringing the item itself and saying, take it, do what you want with it. And they're, they're providing resources out to those in need. And what they're doing is, from an economic standpoint, is they're lowering, their, I mean, they're leveling the playing field. They're getting rid of any hierarchical system that could exist in the church. And they see a hierarchy that exists inside the religious system of the day, and they're trying to level that, and nobody told them to do it. I think that's beautiful, and that's something we haven't brought up yet. Nobody told them to do this. Nobody told Barnabas, you know what, you have too much stuff, go sell some of it and give it to the church. No one guilted him into it. No one told him that if he sent enough money, he'd get a vial of holy water and he could get healed of all of his ailments. No one, no one told him any of that stuff. This isn't stuff he picked up at a late night infomercial. This is stuff that he's getting because he's dwelled with, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of living God is in him. And because of that, these people feel compelled by the Spirit of the living God, to share their resources with one another, their food with one another, their homes with one another. They're providing for any needs that present themselves. As the church grows by the thousands in a very short amount of time, in, in, in typical fashion, there's no the systems are not caught up with the amount of people that are coming in. And so now there are people that are being overlooked so Satan tries to throw in some demographics here. He tries to throw in some potential racism here. He tries to throw in all these wrenches to unity. And the apostles say, listen, we don't want anyone overlooked in the food distribution, no matter where they're from. But the widows, the Hellenists were complaining about the widows not, being, not having their needs met and being overlooked in the food distribution. And so the apostles say... 
What God has called us to do is to know the word of God and communicate it out to people because as God sends his word out, people are being changed by it. If we take our eyes off of that just for a second, disunity could happen. So here's what I think needs to happen. We need to appoint seven godly people within this group to go and be the diaconists, the, the, the deacons. And we will continue to focus on, t- on studying and knowing and communicating the Word of God. And these seven men will be responsible for taking and investing in people and being the boots on the ground that are serving people. And so these needs get met and so that we don't have this come up again. So what Satan meant for harm actually mobilized a whole new section of people within the church that didn't really have a clear role yet and were made for it. This is a beautiful moment in the life of the church. So disunity didn't happen. It actually just bolstered unity. And it gives us the names of these people. And one of the names of the seven that were appointed is a guy named Stephen. So we ended our sermon last week on chapter, I mean, on chapter 6, verse 7. And at the end of that, we saw something that tends to be a reoccurring theme in this beginning part of Acts Verse 7 of chapter 6 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We saw that now, so Satan wanted disunity to come into the life of the church, and now it's not just that the the word of God is, is, is entrenching into society, it's that people are coming to know Christ in multitudes now. The Word of God and the converts are multiplying. That's exponential growth, right? Not addition. This is multiplication. These are big numbers coming at over and over and over again, and that number just keeps growing larger and larger. And now even some of the priests, the ones who stood in the Sanhedrin and threatened Peter and John and said, don't you dare speak in the name of Jesus, some of them are coming to know Christ. This is going very poorly for Satan. This is not going well for him. And because it's not going well for him, he's going to up his tactics. And that's where we get to today. So one of the deacons' name is Stephen. Now, something I want to make very clear here before we go any further is that we tend to think the difference between elder and deacon is that elders preach and teach and deacons don't. What we're going to see here is that that's not true. Because Stephen preaches a really awesome sermon. It takes up a whole chapter. It's the longest sermon we see in chapter 7. And I like that Stephen's long-winded. I can relate to that. So let's look at the second half of chapter 6 before we look at Stephen's sermon. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power. Now remember, this is right after we hear that the church is multiplying, that... uh, that there is exponential growth in the life of the church and the great many of the priests. Now, great many, I don't think that that's like, if Meg sent me to the grocery store and said, get two tomatoes, I'd come home with, I'd probably come home with four tomatoes, but, because I don't follow directions very well. But if she said, bring home a great many of tomatoes, I wouldn't bring home four. I'd like, how many tomatoes do you have? My wife needs a great many of tomatoes, right? So when you hear great many, do you think one or two? These are the guys who were threatening Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. 
These are the priests that were witnesses to and maybe even a part of the condemnation of Jesus that led to his death. These same guys who have been entrenched in the law their entire lives are, great many of them are coming to know Christ. That's where we leave off. This is where we pick up. So, and Stephen, one of the deacons, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, let's just look at this real fast. Stephen's chosen as one of the deacons. We saw that in chapter 6, verse 5. It says in, uh, in the description of the seven men, it says that they, they were full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the reasons he gets picked. So let's, a little bit that we do know about Stephen. Here's what, here's what they emphasize about Stephen. We don't know what color hair he has. We don't know what kind of car he drives. We don't know what kind of job he has. We don't know how big his house is. We don't know how big his retirement account is. We don't know how much money he has in his account today. Here's what we do know. We know he's a man. We know he loved Jesus. We know he's full of the Holy Spirit. So when Luke has the opportunity to describe one of the heroes of the faith to us, what he decides to tell us is that he's a dude, that he loves Jesus, and he's filled with the Spirit. There's something to be said about what we're known for. Chapter 6, verse 8, it says that he was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is how we get Stephen's description. Then it goes on to say that there was a group of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, is what it was called. This isn't like the Masonic Lodge. I don't know about you, but that's what I pictured. I pictured like the secret society that rose to the surface, and now they're mad at Stephen. But that's not who this is. These are, freed, these are men who were freed from slavery, mostly out of Cyrene uh, and, and, and other Gentile territories. So these were guys that were put into slavery in uh, Gentile territories, and now they're no longer slaves, and they're, they've come up with pretty much their own style of doing religion. So it goes on to say that... Uh, that they call him in and they make these claims against him. And I love this uh, because this is not common in our society, at least. Whenever it says that they rose up against and disputed with Stephen, verse 10 says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You imagine that debate? When people are like, yeah, well, what about this, Stephen? And they drop, man, they drop their bomb. This is how we get him. And he responds, and they're like, all right, I don't really have anything else to say, right? They have nothing to say. They're, they can't refute anything he's saying. This is an amazing moment. No wonder they're mad, right? 
Okay, so how many moments have we seen so far where men's pride could have fallen down and they could have submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit and they just, they doubled down. They doubled down. Like, no, we're not going to let these people win. We're not going to sacrifice our religious systems. We're not going to sacrifice the world that we've built for ourselves for this Jesus of Nazareth, as they refer to Him. So, when they realize they don't have anything against Him and they can't, they can't have any kind of verbal sparring match with Him because they're not winning anything, they do what desperate men do. They lie. They lie. And they get other people to lie for them. They plant witnesses. They find desperate people that are willing to do what they want them to do. And they say, you go before the Sanhedrin. You go before the leaders of the day. And you tell them that you heard Stephen say this. And they say, okay. And then they go do it. They say that this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This man's going to change our way of life. As if that's not enough, our way of life was handed to us by Moses himself. Do you realize what he's trying to take from us? They're, they're, they're doubling down pretty hard here because they're not just saying they speak against the temple. They're using history to stand on. They're saying, our forefathers fought and died for this country. That's the kind of stuff we hear arguments in this country, right? That's what they're doing. They're doubling down on history. They're saying, oh, you're going to stand against what Moses gave to us? You're going to let him get away with, with speaking against Moses? guess you just don't love God. That's the tone. That's what they're, that's what they're trying to convey. So it basically comes down to, they, they charge him with two crimes here. Two crimes. So their false accusations come down to two things, that he spoke against the temple, he spoke out against the temple, and he spoke out against the law. Those are their those are their charges. Now, if you go back into, towards the tail end of the book of Luke, Luke also wrote that one, and you hear how he starts telling about the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, you will hear echoes of the same, the same jargon, these same words, the same tone, made-up charges, desperate men, planting witnesses, paying people off to keep their mouth shut, all of that stuff is happening with Jesus. Now it's happening again. Now, before we go any further, we need to look at it. We need to, uh, before we look at Stephen's response in chapter 7, we need to look at a couple things. One, we need to remember, some, we need to remember two big things here before we look at Stephen's response. One is that true godliness often stirs up the world's most fierce opposition. True godliness oftentimes stirs up the absolute fiercest opposition this world can throw at us. Stephen was a man known to be godly and known to have high character. That's what he was known for. And so when he starts speaking truth, 
man, it brings out the absolute worst of the establishment. Also, we shouldn't be surprised. We, we shouldn't be surprised when we experience the kind of persecution Jesus received. Because the more we live and look like Jesus, the more the things that happen to Jesus should be happening to us. We live in a world that Jesus lived in, right? We might be more advanced. We might dress differently. We might live differently. We might have different technologies afforded to us. But we're living on the same soil, the same planet that Jesus lived on. So the more we live like Him, the more we look like Him, the more we will experience what He experienced. And at the tail end of Jesus' life, He experienced everyone but a few women abandoning Him. His closest friends, His allies, His own brothers, gone. Afraid to be associated with Him. And when He hung on that cross, He looked down at very few people who loved him enough to admit they were followers of him. His mother and John, those are two, that's who we see. <laughs> the world system was stripped from Jesus. They took it all away. So he hung naked on a cross. So we shouldn't be surprised when we experience that kind of persecution in our world some reason, it still surprises us, but we say things like, my coworkers are mean to me, right? I mean, that, that's, how we, that's how we carry persecution. But this is not, when, I just want to, like, true godliness oftentimes stirs up the world's most fierce opposition. The more we look and live like Jesus, the more we will probably experience the kind of things that Jesus experienced. And the second thing, we must be patient with an unbelieving world, even when they twist and distort the message we preach. We need to be patient with a very unbelieving world even when they twist and distort the message we preach. The world that upsets Christians the most is the world that needs Jesus the most. I tend to think that our protests and boycotts don't really bring people to Jesus. They just make us Pharisees sometimes. So we need to have a posture like Stephen has here because he stands in the midst of this opposition and he doesn't call them morons. He doesn't tell them idiot, they're idiots. He doesn't say, you know what? Me and my friends, we're not coming back to this temple until you stop enforcing that rule. We're not buying Nikes anymore, right? That's not their posture here. That's not how they're, they're interacting with an unbelieving world. They're holding firm to their faith, by the way. When, you, when we preach through Stephen's message, you will understand that Stephen did not back down from what he believed. He did not, he did not cower and, 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 and make concessions to an unbelieving world. But he also was patient with an unbelieving world that took the message he was preaching and twisted and distorted it to try to make him the enemy. 
The chapter, chapter 6 ends with a verse that I think we need to make sure we know what Luke's saying here. It says that all those present saw, saw Stephen and it looked as though he had the face of an angel, right? People, you ever said that about a baby? Oh, he has the face of an angel. Oh, look, he has the face of an angel, right? And I think when we say that, we picture like the naked baby with a diaper and wings on shooting arrows from a cloud up in the, up in the sky, like we picture a cherub. But, but angels were warriors of light. Angels were messengers of God. Never in the Bible do we see an angel come down in a diaper and shoot someone with a heart-shaped arrow. But for some reason, that's how we picture angels. So whenever it says it's like, like when Stephen's looking, all of a sudden his face is glowing, he's got a big smile and rosy cheeks. And everyone's like, aww. That's kind of what we picture when we hear like he had the face of an angel. But no, he had the face of a warrior of light about to bring down some harsh truth that came straight from God. So that's how chapter 6 ends. <clears throat> the priests get a chance to ask one question. And it's the wrong one. Because what they do is they give this man an opportunity to preach the sermon of his lifetime. And at the end of it, it makes him so angry that they dip into darkness they've never dipped into before. And in their rage, they do something that changes the course of human history. Stephen's response is chapter 7. Now, we know he wasn't guilty. We know he wasn't guilty. We have the... We're not there. But can you feel the tension when you read this? Can you feel it? Can you feel this man in a room filled with religious legalists? And they're, they're accusing him of these horrendous crimes, punishable by death. We've seen this happen before, and it did not go well for Jesus. At least that's what society believed at the time. I think it's important that we read this. This is long. This is the longest sermon we have in the New Testament. This is the longest sermon we have in the book of Acts. So I think it's important that we read it together and that we see this so that you don't think that I'm saying something Stephen didn't say. So Stephen, instead of addressing the charges, now let's revisit the charges. He spoke out against the temple. He spoke out against the law. So he spoke out against the institution, and he spoke out against the law. You spoke out against the temple. You spoke out against the rules that save us. That's essentially what they're saying. The temple is the holy dwelling place of God. The law is what brings us to salvation. And he's speaking out against both of them, which he's not, by the way. Not directly. So here's what the priests say. Verse 1, again, this is on uh, uh, page, like, what, 632, I think. What, Peter's about, what, what Stephen's about to do is teach a theology master class. The, the high priest, the first part of, of chapter 7, verse 1, they say, are these things true? Are these things so? <laughs> It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question because now they can give Stephen a chance to speak. 
and I don't see any rests in here where he stops to take a breath. He's not giving him any chance to refute anything that he's about to say. And instead of addressing the accusations, instead of saying, no, it's not true, are you serious? No. This is what Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14, And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in the words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt 
and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directly, him to make make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they they dispossessed the, the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now stop there. He could drop the mic right then and there. He could drop the mic right then and there because I don't know if he caught it or not, but he did defend the accusations. Do you hear all that he was saying about Moses? Do you hear all that he was saying about the tabernacle being built in the desert and how God does not rest in buildings built by men? He's responding to the accusations. He's saying, I would never say things against Moses. The handwork of God that God used in Moses, Moses was the forerunner to Jesus. Moses was rejected by his own people. Moses had his back turned on him by his own people, and he still stayed faithful to the Lord and then scribed the words given to him that you call your law. I would never speak out against him. That's what Stephen's saying. Now, just like the other guys doubled down, Stephen's about to do it. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now stop right there. You always resist the Holy Spirit. I want to go back and show you something. I just saw this this morning. It blew my mind. Right at the tail end of verse 6, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law in verse 13 of chapter 6. Their accusation to Stephen is that you never stop. He never stops to speak words against this holy place in the law. He never stops speaking against the temple and how important the law is. And then Stephen responds to that by saying, 
you always resist the Holy Spirit. Always and never. Megan and I always tell people in premarital counseling, those are words you shouldn't use in an argument with your spouse. You always do that. You never do this. That's exactly what's happening here. This man never stops speaking against the saving power of the law. That's the accusation. And the holiness of the temple. And Stephen's response to that accusation is, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Boom. The mic just got dropped. You who are accusing me of downplaying the law, generations of you have killed the prophets when they speak on the name of Jesus, when they prepare hearts for Jesus, and you killed every one of them. You persecuted every one of them. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, people who always resist the Holy Spirit. Generationally, you are always doing this. You have done this for generations. You put more hope in the law and the world that you've built for yourself. Then, and it all tunes out the Jesus who's here to save you, the Spirit of the living God who dwells in the church that's here to save you, and you're so blind to your own sin, you don't even see it. That's what he's saying to them. He says, you, you went so far that you killed Jesus. You realized the one the prophets were telling you is coming. You killed him. You, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Don't accuse me of bashing the law. You guys don't keep it. Generations have taught you to memorize it and to know it and to be able to spout it off and to hold people accountable to it, but you don't keep it. That's what he's saying to them. I don't know if he had the same tone as me. <coughs> 54 is a turning point in the life of the church, and we never go back. A turning point, good and bad, in the life of the church happens at verse 54 because men who see the world they've created for themselves as crumbling underneath their feet, and they won't tolerate it, and they definitely won't repent. So in their anger and in their rage, this is what they do when they heard, verse 54, when they heard these things. Do you realize what, what Stephen's sermon did, by the way? Stephen just preached the gospel. He walked them through from Abraham, the father of the faith, the one that these men hold so strongly to their values to. They link everything back to him. And he goes through all the major Jewish fathers of the faith. Every one of them he addresses. He links all of them to Jesus. And then he drops that last big bomb on them and says, you killed him. Because you put more value in the law and the world and system that you created for yourselves than you do the one who came to redeem you. And they couldn't take it. They were filled with rage and they groaned their teeth at him. Do you ever get so mad at somebody? You just like, Right? How many of you do that? Right? It's, it should be a natural response to us. 
Like, you know, that person that pulls out in front of you or looking at their phone and the whole cycle of the light goes through right in front of you. They don't even pay attention to your horn. You're like, come on, right? That's what's happening here. They are enraged and they're like this. Now, some of us can get enraged, maybe at our own children, like this. We always pick on Meg's dad because when he got like that with with Meg's brother, he'd go, because he'd rather take it out on himself than on his own kids, right? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and stand, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he said in verse 56, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What an amazing moment for Stephen. He doesn't know for sure what's about to happen. And he doesn't really care. Because as he's done preaching this message, he looks up and the heavens open And he sees God. He sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He sees it with his own eyes. And he says to the crowd, I see it. Well, that just made them even more mad. But they cried out, verse 54, with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they, they stoned him. Now, let me just walk you through real quick what that means. They had a, a section outside of the city that would have been indented down so that anybody that maybe came and tried to attack the city had to come uphill. They would have tossed him over that hill and they would have grabbed as many rocks as they could, as big as they could hold up over their head, and they would have just kept tossing them down on him until he died. And that would also be his grave. So I don't want you to picture the Monty Python version of someone being stoned. I don't want you to picture someone like grabbing little rocks, like you're shooing away a dog. They would take the the biggest rocks they could hold, and they'd just berate him with them and barrage him with them until he was dead. So they cried out in a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. Very important moment about to happen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Essentially, people were saying, hold my cloak, Saul, so that I can get a better throw of this rock. A young man named Saul is standing there saying, hey, I'll hold your coat. Get that guy out of here. And as they were stoning Stephen, as the rocks are hitting Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. His last words, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. We've heard that before, haven't we? Haven't we heard that before? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. It's 
Stephen teaches a master class in theology. He links what already the Jews are living by, the code they're living by, the law they live by, and he connects it all to the person of Jesus in a way that cannot be refuted. It cannot be argued. It cannot be denied. And that is what triggered their rage. They weren't mad at Stephen. They were mad because they knew they were wrong and they weren't ready to admit it. You ever been in an argument that you very clearly have lost? And instead of saying, you know what, you're right, you double down. Anyone guilty of that? I'll raise my hand, usually over something stupid and ridiculous, but instead of admitting that they're wrong, they double down. And it leads to their rage because they know, they know they're wrong. He addresses to them that Moses wasn't the Messiah. Moses was a picture of the Messiah. You put too much hope in men. You've done it for centuries, and that's what's led you to here today. You think that some of you are holier than the rest of us, and it's not true. If you'd stop deifying your forefathers, you'd be able to see that Jesus is your only king. Don't deify people that kept the law. Deify the only one worth deifying. Don't call anyone a saint or a god. There's only one of those. The temple doesn't have any saving power, he says. The dwelling of the Holy Spirit does not exist in anything that man has built anymore. That's not what happened. When Jesus died, when Jesus died, the veil was torn and the Holy Spirit does not reside in things that man has built anymore. The Holy Spirit resides in His temple, which is His church, which is people. You should have seen me trying to prep this message on an airplane, by the way. I wanted to like pace the aisles and be like, you listening? Take those headphones off, right? <clears throat> There's two can't-miss items for us, I think. There's two things that we can't miss. One is before Stephen died, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You realize the absolute worst thing anyone can do to us here on earth is send us into the presence of Jesus? Think about that. The absolute worst thing anyone can do to you here on earth, if you believe in Christ and are redeemed by His blood, is to send you into Jesus' presence. So I say, bring it on. Right? Before Stephen dies, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I think the stones still hurt, by the way. I think it was a horrible way to die. That didn't matter to Stephen, though. The worst thing that anyone can ever do to you if you are in Christ is to send you into the presence of Jesus. And the second thing is Stephen prayed for those who were murdering him. We call it martyrdom. That makes it sound nicer. But he got murdered. In plain sight, by a whole group of people who claimed to love God. And they got away with it. No one even brought charges down on them. 
You see echoes, so many echoes of Jesus here. It's beautiful. So a person who loves Christ lives, speaks, and even dies like Jesus. A person who loves Jesus lives, speaks, and even dies like him. Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. It is finished. I've done all you've called me to do. I have lived faithfully for you. I have strived to glorify you with my life. I have run to you for forgiveness when I've disobeyed. I have, I have led a life of repentance. God, I know I, I can't wait to stand in your presence. I need to see you. I need to experience you face to face. The trials of this earth are over, but I was faithful to you, God. So you don't just speak like Jesus. You don't just live like Jesus. You die like Jesus. After this moment, there is a scattering that happens, and we're going to get into that next week. After this, there's a shift in the book of Acts, an active shift of persecution. They do not want to experience this in the law-abiding world, in the legalistic world anymore. They woke themselves up to a reality that they can't fall back asleep to. They are murderers. And instead of repenting for that, they're going to double down and say, you know what? That's how we shut them up. And the whole message of the gospel shifts in this moment. This is why it's a huge shift in the span of human history, because the whole message shifts from being a message to the Jews to being a message to the Gentiles. And a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. Before this moment, the message was being preached to Jews. And in this moment, this persecution happens. The death of Stephen ushers in an era in the church where the gospel is about to reach Gentiles. And that makes the legalists even more upset. This moment also scatters the gospel because the fear did set into people and they no longer wanted to stay in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember back in Acts 1.8, it was clearly given by God that you would go into all the world, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the world, right? But up to this point, they haven't done that. All of the followers of Jesus that were original to this call, all of the apostles, all of them are still camped out in Jerusalem. It takes one of their own being killed to start spreading them out. I'm going to give you a little taste of next week. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, And Paul approved, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered, listen to this, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's awesome, right? Because they're supposed to go there. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Don't miss the next part because I missed it for years. We're going to camp out on this a little bit next. That the believers are scattering and going and being the hands and feet of Jesus just like he told them to, but who decided not to go? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
They stayed. They stayed in Jerusalem. Let that sink in a little bit. We'll talk about it next week. But let me just ask you this. Stephen sets the bar, in my opinion, of someone who is filled with the Spirit of God and willing to live, speak, and die like Jesus. Now, we don't compare ourselves to anyone but Jesus. because Jesus is holy and perfect. And if I compare myself to anyone that's not Jesus, I will not see my brokenness. So I'm going to compare myself to Jesus and the cross, and I'm going to see myself as nothing apart from him. Because he was the only one that was perfect. But Stephen sets a heck of an example and a heck of a bar of what it looked like to live a faithful life for God. And he was known as a man who was godly. He was known as a man filled with the Spirit. That's how he was known before this moment. The lore of Stephen has reached for thousands of years, and we still talk about him today. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Do you really believe God at that level? Are you living, speaking, and someday going to die honoring God? Or is this just another step on the wheel, the hamster wheel that we've created for ourselves called being a Christian? Let's pray. God, we've seen you move. You moved the mountains. And I believe you're going to do it again. You made a way where there's no way. God, you used Stephen in a mighty way to do some amazing things for your glory and renown. And we pray that you would use us in this room to do the same things. That we wouldn't just say we live for you. We wouldn't just speak about you. We would speak of you. And we would be able to speak for you because you are our king. You are our our God. You are our savior. We would have boldness like the apostles prayed for. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of a life that maybe doesn't look the way we thought it would, circumstances that don't feel like they should be our circumstances. Lord, we know you are faithful. We know we live in a broken and fallen world, but that does not change your goodness. So Lord, we know that you have done this before and we know you will do it again. We want to live as faithful, loving followers of our King. 